You're listening to Season 5 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 5.6, Fight or Flight, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and hey, we may not have finished in time for New Year's the way we wanted to, but we also didn't finish in time for Lunar New Year either. And I'm Nina, new to War in the Pocket, and not ready for it to be over! Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 610 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Paul S., Chris B., Ryan E., John, and Ryan M. Two Ryans in one week? This is getting out of hand. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And welcome back to a couple of returning patrons. We see you. A special thank you this week to Joe K for sending us a Nengajo or New Year's card from Japan. To Knight, but with a Q instead of a G. I don't know how we're supposed to say that. Uh, for buying us a fascinating looking book on combat psychology. And to a mystery listener. Uh, the book didn't come with any kind of note. Uh, who bought us a book on Japanese consumer behavior from our wish list. Subscribing and buying us things from our wish list are just two of many ways to support MSB. Links to all of our favorites are in one convenient place, gundampodcast.com support. Next week, we will be recording our last episode of Season 5, as we wrap discussion of War in the Pocket with final thoughts, topics that wouldn't fit in this episode, last-minute research, and... Listener questions. That's right. If you have a question about this season of MSB, email us at gundampodcast at gmail.com. You have until 5 a.m. Wednesday, February 16th, New York time to get those to us. So don't procrastinate. If that seems like not very much time, that's right. It isn't. Get those emails in. We look forward to reading and discussing your questions. This week we are covering Poketo no Naka no Senso, Episode 5, Usodato Iteo Bani, or War in the Pocket, Episode 5, Say It Ain't So, Bernie. Storyboards for this episode were handled by Sato Junichi under the pseudonym Hadame Kiichi. He also did the boards for Episode 2. He was probably working under a pseudonym because he was simultaneously directing the show Akuma-kun for Toei Animation under his real name. And in just a few years, he would be overseeing the first Sailor Moon anime, also for Toei. This appears to be Sato's last outing on Gundam, though he will return to mecha anime and the Hadame pseudonym in the future, doing storyboards for scattered episodes of Evangelion, Escaflone, Saber Marionette J, and The Big O. But as for Gundam, goodbye, Sato Junichi. Thank you for your service. The episode director was Takamatsu Shinji, who also directed episodes 1 and 3. There were three credited animation directors, Tomizawa Kazuo, Kawamoto Toshihiro, and Kubooka Toshiyuki. 
all of whom had served in that role on prior episodes. Tomizawa was previously an animation director for First Gundam, and this seems to be his last time working on Gundam, so goodbye to Tomizawa as well. Kawamoto is a Gundam lifer, and he is not going to stop at animation director either. We will be hearing more about him before too long. Finally, Kubooka isn't quite done with Gundam yet, but the next time we see him it will be on SD Gundam Force, of all things. 0080 was his first time working on Gundam, which is a bit ironic because before that, he was a longtime Tomino collaborator, animating for Zabungle, Ideon, and Elgheim. Sakakibara Yoshiko, aka the voice of Haman and Nanai, is back for another cameo, this time voicing the distraught redhead in the Spaceport Lounge. I should also note while talking about the voice actors that while Steiner and Misha were both played by actors who had minor roles on Char's counterattack, Garcia, or Gabriel Ramirez Garcia, was played by none other than Shimada Bin, aka Jupiter Headband from Zeta Gundam. Got all that? Great. Now let's hear the recap. The Rubicon mission to capture or destroy the Federation's new Alex mobile suit has failed. Word reaches Killing and Granada and he orders a nuclear missile prepared. When the commander of Granada tries to stop him, Killing shoots him. Soldiers loyal to him take out the commander's men. The missile is loaded into a ship and a fleet prepared. If the Alex isn't destroyed by 12.01 a.m. Christmas Day, the captain has orders to fire the nuclear missile at the colony. In the aftermath of the attack, the police want to speak to the pilot of the Alex. They are surprised when that turns out to be Chris. Mainly, they want to know if she saw anything that might help them find the two Xeon soldiers who were seen escaping, or if she knows anything about the inside help Xeon were purported to have had. But the lead detective also takes the opportunity to upbraid Chris. Xeon wouldn't have been interested in the colony at all if the Federation weren't developing mobile suits there. Not far from his old downed Zaku, Bernie hides in the woods. A wooden cross marks the final resting place of Captain Steiner, killed by the gunshot wound he took in the base. Bernie had intended to lay low for a while, but their contact, the hacker Charlie, urges haste. He's uncovered Xeon's plans to destroy the colony. Al brings Bernie food, stopping on the way to gawk as rescuers pull bodies from the wreckage of buildings. One of the bodies is a kid, and Bernie drops the bag he's holding, overcome by horror and guilt and sadness. Shaking himself, he snatches the bag up and runs to the park. They sit together on the grass, and Bernie seems irritated by Al's pensiveness. Then Bernie tells Al that he plans to run that the colony is doomed and Al should try to convince his mom that they should run too. Al wants to keep fighting. They'll save the whole colony if they can just destroy the Alex. But Bernie can't see how they can beat that monster. They argue and Al runs off. Wandering into an arcade, Al sees some teens sitting in a fake cockpit, playing a game where they pilot a mobile suit and fight in a city. The screen flashes white as a bomb explodes, and suddenly, Al is living the battle over again. 
the explosion whipping his hair and clothes around as he vividly imagines what a nuclear explosion would do to his own town, his home, his classmates. Walking through town, he finds Chris looking through the rubble of a destroyed house. He's obviously troubled, and despite his reticence, her kind prompting encourages him to open up a little. Al asks her, hypothetically, if she knew the colony were going to be attacked, would she stay and fight or run away? Chris thinks she would fight, but the choice isn't one of bravery versus cowardice, like Al thinks it is. It's about what she thinks is right and what she can live with. Running on, Al passes the school and finds Che and Telcott gleefully dodging construction workers as they pick over the ruin for shell casings and other mementos. It's all Al can do not to burst into tears. Even though he's afraid he'll be executed as a traitor, Al goes to the police to tell them everything he knows, hoping they'll be able to do something to stop the attack and save the colony. None of them believe him, and they drag him outside. What more can he do? At home, his mom happily announces that she and his dad have made up. His dad will be coming home, just in time for Christmas, and they'll all be together again. After dinner, sitting on his bed in the dark, Al worries. Now his dad will also be killed. And what can he do? Bernie spends the afternoon at the spaceport, choosing a destination based on the tourism advertisements playing on monitors around the room. While waiting for the ship to board, he goes to the bar for a whiskey and finds himself eavesdropping on the tearful, angry phone call of a woman to her former husband, who has left her for someone else. While she berates him for leading her on, for lacking the courage even to lie, Bernie remembers all the happy little moments with Al over these past weeks. When boarding begins, he leaves the spaceport, tearing up his ticket. From a payphone, Bernie calls Al. Before he can say anything, Al apologizes for the things he said when they argued and begs Bernie for help, help that Bernie had already decided to give. Together, we can do it. I think that this is the very first Gundam episode we have covered that does not contain any mobile suit fighting. Have there been mobile suit fights in every episode of War in the Pocket so far? In episode three, there is a simulator battle, which mm. does involve simulated mobile suits, and I'm counting it. If you're going to count simulators, then I think the arcade counts. But there are no... Well, I guess there's that flying, there's uh, transforming, suit. like, mecha in the arcade. Hmm. Does that count? That's a good question. The player is clearly piloting a mobile suit through a city. <laughs> uh, yeah, mm, I don't know. We'll see. I don't know why I just said we'll see. We're not. <laughs> we've seen. I would argue that if the simulator counts, the video game counts. The simulator is... This is a much... Um, Deeper. More, more interesting and deeper question <laughs> I thought we were going to get into on this uh, comment. But in the simulator, they are actual mobile suits depicted as though they are real. There is no visual discernible difference from the audience experience 
of this battle versus one that actually literally happened. Whereas the video game arcade is quite clearly a different thing. But it's a different thing because of the technological constraints of the people making the video games. Mm. The whole design of this particular arcade game is supposed to be reminiscent of a cockpit. You're supposed to feel like you are piloting a mobile suit when you sit in this pod and play this game. Mm -hmm. If they cannot replicate real combat, it's not because they're not trying. <laughs> uh, I think this is a question that doesn't have a right answer. Was there or was there not mobile suit fighting in this episode? Is it or is it not the first Gundam episode that doesn't have any? Well, that's fascinating. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that simulator and about that arcade scene? Yeah, I didn't realize that was going to come up first, but hey, here neither, we are. Neither did I. You're the one who brought it up. You could have just let me be right. On a lighter note, before we get into the uh, very heavy aspects of this scene, uh, I'm tickled by this because when I studied abroad in Japan, I'm not going to tell you when, <laughs> and Tom came to visit me, I made a point of taking him to an arcade that had these Gundam Pod simulator games where you sit in a pretend cockpit and there's a bit of a wraparound screen thing going on and you pilot a mobile suit in battles. It was very fun. It was a huge moment for me. There's also a few other noteworthy games in this arcade, including one that is shaped like a Zaku's head and is called something like Walking Zaku. Whichever game company is responsible for that must have rushed it out in the past year once the war started, which of course just goes to emphasize how removed from everything Side 6 is. It's hard to imagine a walking Zaku simulator being particularly popular for the people on Earth. There's a title screen on the game that Al's watching that reads Stage 2 Shinjuku Japan 1989. Yeah. Ugh. Clearly designed to bring this home for the audience. This is like when Al is playing the video game in episode one, and it just says, your town destroyed. Like, for a lot of the people watching this OVA in 1989, Shinjuku, Japan is your town, 1989. Before we get to the very intense part of this, I just want to talk about the mecha for a second. Uh, it's a transforming mecha from plane into robot, so a bit like the Zeta or like a variable fighter from Macross. Given its overall proportions and the roundedness of it, it reminds me more of something from Orgus, but I don't think it's based on any particular mecha. I think it's just a type that was popular in the mid-80s. I found this scene incredibly moving, but it wasn't until after the fact, it wasn't until I was rereading my notes and thinking about what I wanted to say that I realized that the animators are maybe trying to convey that Al is having a traumatic flashback. Because when they show him watching a fake explosion, but clearly being plunged into all of the physical sensations of being in the presence of an explosion again, his hair is whipping around, his clothes are whipping around, the bright light is shining on his face. He is vividly remembering what that felt like, and then very vividly, gruesomely imagining what those explosions would do to places he knows, people he knows, uh, in particular the scene of a group of students rushing over 
to the teacher's desk, and the teacher is just sort of like trying to hold this whole group of kids as they are all incinerated by the Mm -hmm. heat of an explosion, which made me think of the Peace Museum in Hiroshima, which if you ever go to Japan, it's well worth visiting. It's very emotional. It's very upsetting, but a very important site with a lot of well-presented information and artifacts. But one of the most striking parts of the museum when I went was that there were life-size dioramas quite explicit and gruesome, of people affected by an atomic bomb. So there's, you know, a rubble, a streetscape, people covered in horrible burns. I'm not going to get more into it than that. It is worse than that. But is an attempt to honestly depict the horrors of an atomic bombing and of living through one. That museum opened in 55 and underwent a major renovation in 75, I don't know when the dioramas date from, but it seems likely that they were in place by the time this show was made. Mm -hmm. I'd like to go back to what you said about Al's experience here and the way it's depicted. I do think you're onto something. When people talk about flashbacks or when they're depicted in media, it tends to be like the most dramatic, the whole hog version, where it's like the characters reliving the experience completely, seeing it, feeling it, smelling it, all of that. Um, But flashbacks come in many different forms, and one kind of flashback is like an emotional flashback. Something triggers the memory, and then emotionally you relive it. Even if you're not having like visual or auditory hallucinations, your nervous system goes crazy. You have the physical experience of living through it again. And I think especially with the way Al's hair is whipping around, like, We're not seeing him in the arcade, we're seeing him in the battle. And there is a direct behind-the-scenes link here, from the arcade scene through to Al imagining the effects of a nuclear bomb on his colony, is all animated by Iso Mitsuo, who was also the animator for the battle at the end of the previous episode, so he's now drawing Al reliving the events that he drew before. Uh, I read an interview with Iso where he's talking about having done this scene, At the time, at least, he was quite displeased with how it turned out. He feels like it was not his best work. And he made a joke in the interview about thinking that he was picked to do this scene because he was bad at drawing explosions. So they made him draw a bunch of explosions over and over again? Possibly. He sort of suggests that it's because they didn't want it to be a really, like, well-done, really realistic depiction of a nuclear blast, that they Mm. wanted somebody who was a little more um, abstract perhaps, whose work would feel a little more imaginary, since it is Al's imagination. At this point, I'm putting words into his mouth a little (laughs) bit and speculating why he thinks it might have been good to give this to somebody who was bad at drawing explosions. Right. Um, And whether or not he's actually bad at drawing explosions is uh, up for debate. Certainly, as we discussed with Matteo, the Mitsuo explosion is a whole style of explosion that many people adopted. So he is perhaps just being excessively humble in this moment. Uh, But it is interesting to read his thoughts on this particular work because, I mean, like you, I had a hugely powerful emotional response to it. I found it to be deeply compelling. Part of that, of course, is the complete absence of sound once it starts. When the blast happens, there's no music, there are no sound effects, it's just the images. 
We'll talk about this more as we move through the episode, but I thought the sound design and the music in this episode were particularly good. When we see a house get like blown away, Mm -hmm. I think that's Al's house. It looks a little bit different, but the layout matches his house and the colors, I think, are right. And I think this scene is meant to be a callback to the video game from episode one, Stalking Crisis or whatever it was called. Your town destroyed. And here Al is imagining his colony being destroyed. This is a place where the use of the Christmas motif allows them to connect a fairly abstract depiction of a city street to this city street, this colony. It's not just any school. It's Al's school. It's not just any street. It's this street with the floating Santa balloon that we've been seeing now for a couple of episodes. And Al's completely different reaction to it now shows how much he has changed, how much the experiences he's had over the past couple of episodes, really just like a week, has changed him. On a thematic level, this episode feels like it's about Al's loss of innocence. And for all that the gleeful, for fun and entertainment, violence of the video game in episode one and the disaffection it relays may have been uncomfortable for us, his obvious trauma now (laughs) is so heartbreaking. Yeah, my heart aches for this child who has to know these things. And that he cannot enjoy the things that he used to enjoy. That's just not fun for him anymore. And this comes up a few times throughout the episode. We'll talk about it again. And his craving to be part of something bigger, to be part of the Xeon army, to be part of Cyclops' team, has now created a wedge between him and his friends. It has made him more isolated. I'm going to jump to that scene with his friends now since this transitions nicely. He is on the verge of tears and actually crying and suppressing tears with laughter through this whole scene. And I couldn't necessarily articulate to you why, but there's a whole list of emotions that I get the sense he's feeling. He envies their innocent joy. Like, oh, we collected these spent shells. Isn't it exciting? He he longs for the past. He longs for the time just a week or two ago when he would have been just as excited and just as joyful. He is mourning his own loss of innocence. He is living with this fear, dread, horrible anticipation of what is to come, which is knowledge that no child should be burdened with. He's also incredibly relieved that they're okay. But he's probably mourning the specific deaths of Misha and Garcia. You know, the shell casings that they've found are bullets that were fired at Misha. I mean, the little like rifle rounds that Che is holding, probably not. But that big missile that Telcott has found is probably one of the ones that was fired from one of those like mobile batteries. That's not where I thought you were going to go with that. I thought you were going to say that he's mourning the deaths of Che and Telcott, because at this point in the story, he knows they're all going to die in a couple of days, and he doesn't feel there's anything he can do about it, and it doesn't appear that anyone else is going to do anything about it either. There is that, too. So here are his friends who he loves, and they're alive, and they're happy, but in a few days, they'll be gone. 
and he doesn't try to warn them. Except for that one time when he goes to the police, he doesn't try to warn anybody about what's happening. He may feel that if Bernie won't do anything and the police won't do anything, then what is the point of burdening anyone else with this horrible knowledge? Mm-hmm. Like the people he considers most empowered to fix the problem aren't going to. <laughs> and so why would he do that to another person? It's actually like, I think him being kind. Absolutely. And the people who seemed most competent and powerful, strong and untouchable, those Xeon commandos are all dead. He watched them die so easily. Can I just say how incredibly brave it is of him to go to the police when he thinks they're going to execute him for treason? He thinks that by telling them he will die, but he might save the rest of the colony. Like, oh my God, this kid. He's such a brave kid. And I feel somewhat vindicated their reaction to him talking to them about this is what I thought was happening the first time he went to them. You were convinced that even if they didn't necessarily believe him, they would take any mention of Xeon soldiers or the war seriously. I felt like coming from a kid, they almost out of hand wouldn't take it seriously. I'm pretty sure that's what was happening and is still happening now. See, I stand by my initial comments that when he went to them the first time, if he had said... There are these Xeon agents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think probably they would have at least checked it out back then. But this is a classic boy who cried wolf scenario. He has proven to the cops that he is not trustworthy. But they don't recognize that he's the kid who lied to them until they're already kicking him out of the station. They don't say that until they're kicking him out of the station. That doesn't mean that they didn't recognize him earlier. I hate to break it to you listeners, but I think we've gotten to one of those points where Tom and I just do not agree. And there is the additional horrible irony that a twist. I was wrong about the letter from uh, Al's dad. It was probably about his parents making up. Yeah. His parents are not getting divorced. They have, in fact, worked out whatever they needed to work out. And his father is going to move home just in time for them all to get blown up. Hooray. At least they'll be together. I feel so bad for Al because if it occurred to him, he'd have a lot more luck going to the Fetties and saying, hey, so... Yeah, I mean, if he if he actually told Chris the whole story, mm-hmm. like, she would probably believe him and she would have the institutional legitimacy to be able to convince people in actual positions of power to do something. Right. While Al has grown up a lot in the past couple of weeks and his perspective on things has definitely changed, he still fundamentally sees war as a matter of fighting and destroying with guns. So he still fundamentally sees a data scientist like Chris as not really a soldier, not really able to affect things. And while there might be other solutions to this problem, he doesn't see them. When he and Bernie are talking in the woods, it's Al who says, well, then we just need to destroy the Gundam, right? We just need to complete the mission. This actually connects to what I was thinking about with the Xeon High Command and the bits that we get about them, because it seems at this point that this whole saga has been about killing, manufacturing a reason to nuke a Side 6 colony. Hmm. 
I wouldn't go quite that far, but I can see how you got there, and I, I don't think you're necessarily wrong. Um, in a way, it feels like a microcosm for Xeon's whole, like, strategic-level mismanagement of the war. This obsessive focus on individual mobile suits and mobile armors, on this constant Pyrrhic expenditure of vital war resources, the sacrificing of all of these veteran soldiers for these tiny little insignificant gains that ultimately cannot win them the war. Like, at this point, strategically, they have to know the war is lost. If killing doesn't, it's because he's out of touch with reality. It's because he's a true believer diehard who just cannot see the big picture. They have to know that they're going to lose. And so what difference is one more Gundam going to make? What difference is it going to make if the Alex is at Abawaku or not? They've lost. So by nuking Ribo, the side six colony, all they're going to accomplish is to put them in a much worse bargaining position when it comes time to discuss terms for the truce. All it's going to do is make enemies out of what had been a relatively friendly, neutral country. And that's the whole Operation Rubicon. All of those raids and attacks on this Side 6 colony, like, what have they accomplished? All they've done is turned Side 6 from neutral into a Federation ally. They've swayed public opinion away from them. Related to your point about sort of wastefulness and counterproductive actions on the Xeon side, and the reason that you talking about Al's sort of oversimplification of everything made me think of it, and this has been true in other depictions of Xeon in previous Gundam shows, but the factionalism, the petty infighting for personal power. And Al looks at the situation and just sees equations. Well, they say this is their goal, and so if we accomplish the goal, they'll have no reason to attack. But there's so much more to it. It's so much more complicated. Even if they destroyed the Alex, I'm not convinced that killing would call off an attack. Mm -hmm. There's a possibility that the captain of the ship carrying the nuke wouldn't fire it, would refuse the order. It's already been hinted at in that when he receives the cargo, he asks killing, okay, so you, you really want to use this? Mm-hmm. The possibility of someone refusing an order to use this widely despised banned weapon has been presented to us. We'll see what happens with it. And there are echoes of that real-life conflict within, for instance, the German military during World War II between the true party faithful who see the failure of the party as the end of the world versus the professional soldiers who, if they survive the war, expect to be in basically the same job in the next government. Of course, there's a deeply personal aspect to this. From the way killing is depicted, I would guess that he is probably a war criminal many times over, and if Zeon loses the war, he's going to jail forever. The base commander, whose name is Rugens, uh, will probably surrender Granada. He'll be treated fairly well in a fairly luxurious Federation prison for a couple of months and then repatriated to Xeon, where he'll get a high position in government in the Republic. Or would have, except for what happens to him in this episode. I don't know if this is true of all children. It seems to be true of Al here. It was definitely true of me 
at that age. But because of the way we're taught about and because of the way people talk about countries and governments, you have this perception of unified purpose that to the extent it's a group of people, they all want the same things and are trying to achieve the same goals. <laughs> As opposed to the very factional, very fragmented nature of these things and how uh, complicated they are in real life. Now that we know about the nuclear bomb, I think we have an answer to your question from last episode. What does Steiner mean when he sadly says, it's a nice colony, isn't it? And I think this is the answer. He knows from Charlie about the plan to nuke the colony. There's even a bit in that scene where they sort of cut away from Steiner and Charlie to show us the family playing with boats and we don't hear what is being said between the two of them. And I assume that this is when that information passes from one to the other. That's part of why I think Rubicon was planned all along to be a pretense for this upcoming attack, because Steiner clearly suspects the same thing. Yes, although I do think in that moment, Steiner believes that if they are successful, if they destroy the Alex, then the colony will be saved. I think that's why he stays. That's why he doesn't run, even though he knows it's a suicide mission. Because whatever the risks to himself and his team, if they can succeed, they can save this nice colony. But he also knows they've been set up to fail. Yes. It's a desperate Hail Mary kind of a play. I got mad at Charlie in this episode. He is someone who could absolutely go turn himself in, and with the things that he knows that he absolutely is not supposed to know, he would be very convincing they'd believe him that he helped with this attack. He could tell them things nobody else could possibly know. And he has already decided to die. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. It's not that he doesn't want to tell them because he doesn't want to be executed because he's trying to live. He's decided to go down with the ship already. He's just consigning everybody else to go too. I mean, there are two explanations for this. One of them is diegetic. One of them is like metatextual. Explain diegetic because I don't remember what that means. Just within within the world of the story. Okay. Um, the narrative machinery explanation is that Charlie is not important to the story, not particularly. Charlie needs to be ineffective so that our actual main characters, Bernie and Al and Chris, can all be essential so that they can be motivated, so that they can be empowered. But that's unsatisfying, right? When the narrative machinery shows through like that, it leaves us feeling unsatisfied. I think the other explanation is that Charlie must be a loyalist. He must be a Zeon loyalist. He must really be committed to his job and the war and Zeon and the chain of command and all of that. And he doesn't like it and he doesn't want it to happen, but those are his orders. And he is not going to jeopardize the mission. He's not going to betray Zeon. Even though it means the likely destruction of the colony and his own death. And he expresses a sentiment we've heard from many older folks in Gundam, which is that he is too old to run. He is too old to start over. He is set in his ways. He is tired. I thought there was a brilliant bit of writing in the way he talks to Bernie in this flashback when he's asking about the fate of the team. Because first he says, what about Hardy? I mean, Steiner. And then he says, what about Misha? And then he says, what about that other guy with the one with the black hair? The young guy with the black hair. 
We learn so much about his history with these guys by the way he talks about them. Right. He was very close friends with Steiner. First name basis friends. They must have known each other for decades. Knew Misha pretty well. Didn't really know Garcia. Mm -hmm. Though we know Garcia was the youngest and the newest. In a way, as much as I love this, it lays bare a kind of big problem with Gundam's overall presentation of older characters, especially older soldiers, which is, when did they get so experienced? What wars were they fighting in before this? Because the conflict between Xeon and the Federation, the one-year war, sort of comes out of nowhere. As far as we know, there are like haven't been a series of wars that Xeon has been involved in. The setup of the Universal Century doesn't exactly allow for it. I know in some of the background materials, there was a war inside six, like 10 years before the One Year War, and surely everyone was involved in that. Maybe that's when Charlie moved here to be a spy, but that's all background material never even hinted at in the show itself. So where did all these old soldiers come from? Yeah, what experience could they possibly have? You're not going to convince me that Steiner and Misha turned into these like veteran experienced soldiers over the course of 12 months of warfare. It is, I think, a gap in the verisimilitude of the Universal Century as a setting that has never been adequately filled. Someone who is learning fast on the job, as it were, is Bernie with his defensive alarm perimeter. Also, very obviously traumatized. He is twitchier. He's more quick to ready his pistol than he was before. He uh, is in survival mode. He's quick to anger, too. When Al is not eating his burger, Bernie just, like, snaps and shoves it in his face. Coming back to the idea I mentioned before about Al's loss of innocence, it's obviously painful for Al, but it's painful for Bernie to see it as well, Mm -hmm. both because he's come to care for Al, but also because he's superimposing himself over Al, the him from before the war and the him from having experienced the war. Early on, Al's innocence was almost motivating. It made Bernie feel like a hero. It made Bernie feel brave and exciting. And that was nice. It was good to feel that way. Now, what remains of Al's innocence, his processing of what's happening, his loss of it, is a burden because it's making Bernie feel all of these very negative feelings when he needs to be focused on surviving. He doesn't have time to think philosophically about the frailty of human life and resents Al making him think about it. But he was certainly thinking about it already. Before Al shows up, he's sitting there staring at the grave for the captain. Uh, Who he tried to lie to. He's terrible at lying. It was sweet, though. Yeah, it's a fantastically composed shot because you have Steiner asking about the Gundam and Bernie is thinking about what to say and when they show us this the Gundam is there in the frame separated from them by just a single wall and a bit of fog there may also be an element of I don't know that there's a term for it but it's been frequently identified that for some people if they've been through a certain kind of hardship they can be very hard on other people going through the same thing. This attitude of, well, I survived it, so why should you need extra help? You'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, Al just saw a dead body, but Bernie's had to see a bunch of his friends get killed and nobody comforted him or listened to him, so. Toughen up, kid. And surely Bernie must also feel guilty. He got Al involved in this. 
And feeling angry is a great way to not feel guilty. And yet he clearly still cares about what Al thinks of him. So much. When he announces his plan to leave, he sort of humphs and looks aside with his eyes closed, but he's he leaves one eye open to gauge Al's reaction. He's still trying to watch Al out of the corner of his eye to see what Al does upon learning this information. I mean, he's treating Al like his conscience. And it kills him. It kills him to see Al disappointed in him. Bernie is in agony when Al leaves. And then at the end, when Bernie decides to stay, I think it's because he desperately, desperately wants to be the person Al thinks he is. You know, when he's listening to that conversation that the woman is having on the phone, at first it feels a little disjointed. At first it feels like it doesn't really apply to his situation quite right. But you hear that line where the woman is like, and you don't even have the courage to keep on lying. Like That's the bit that gets Bernie to change his mind. He finds the courage to keep lying about who he is in the hope that if he just lies long enough and hard enough and commits to it, that maybe he'll be that guy. Jumping back to the scene of the fight in the woods, so many details about how this is animated and composed were really evocative for me. Mm. The fact that in the midst of their argument, Al kicks over a soda and ruins all the food and neither of them notice. But it is shown. We get a specific cut like a of that close happening. Up, yeah. yeah. The perspective shot from Bernie's perspective with his hand on Al's face, mm -hmm. telling Al to try to save himself and Al looking up at us expectantly. This was a scene where uh, <laughs> I was amused by the contrast between the quality of the movement and the quality of the detail. Mm. There's a couple of shots where Bernie's face is so completely off model, it's hilariously unrecognizable. But there's something about the movement. Al, when he grabs his, he starts running, grabs his backpack without stopping and keeps running away and then slides back from behind the tree. Got him sliding down, yes. To get the last word. The running in particular, I would love to know what animator did that because it feels familiar to me. I feel like I've seen that kind of motion before. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't tell you where or from who. It just felt distinctive and familiar. I would also like to know this. I, When I was watching it, the way I characterized it is stage-y. Like, it feels overacted. It's not realistic, but it's also not cartoony. It is the exaggerated motion that you do when you're performing on stage so that your gestures and motions can be seen by people pretty far away from you in the audience. It's something that I associate also with like, I don't think this was done, but it's something I associate with rotoscoping. I was going to say, I think the smoothness of the movement feels reminiscent of rotoscoping. I was going to mention <laughs> Something about the way the frames flow together and the smoothness of the movement, but something about the line work also gives a sense of choppiness. I don't know, like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know enough about animation to describe what I'm feeling, but it did remind me a little of rotoscoping. Mateo, come back. <laughs> Help. <laughs> and I can't believe you mentioned Bernie in the airport, sitting at the bar, in his tan suit, without talking about how he is 100% Char Aznable slash Quattro Vagina. 
Yeah, yeah, he's doing the Shara Asimble outfit, um, the sunglasses, the blonde hair, the whole look. We've been pretty kind to Bernie so far, but there's one thing that I have some feelings about, and that's when he tells Al, fine, go to the police, they'll execute you. Does he really believe that? Or is he buying himself time by terrifying an already traumatized child? Um, I mean, good question. Presumably, there's a lot of Xeon propaganda about how awful the Federation forces are. In World War II, in the Imperial Japanese Army in specific, I know there was a lot of propaganda about what U.S. soldiers would do to you if you surrendered. Including to children. And in the closing stages of the war when they were preparing to defend the homeland to the last ditch, yeah, the the messaging was very much like, they are coming to kill us all. So Bernie might earnestly believe that. He might have been told that. Because if he earnestly believes it, I can forgive him. If he's manipulating Al again, I'm very angry. <laughs> Regrettably, I think you must sit in Schrodinger's box of anger. Yeah. You may, you may or may not be very angry at Bernie right now, and it's impossible to know which. One last thing about Bernie. It didn't happen enough times that I'm positive it was intentional and meaningful, which is to say it happened only twice and not three times. But this episode develops a kind of connection or association between Bernie and nature. When the scene opens of him in the woods, it starts on the Zaku's hand, and there's a bird perched on it. It's already become such a part of the scenery that nature is reclaiming it. And the woods are full of bird song. The whole time he's sitting there looking at the grave, when he's not actively remembering something else and before Al arrives, bird song. Tons of bird song. And then at the very end, when he is on this path that's probably through a park or something, but it's pretty heavily wooded and there's no other people around and it's very minimally lit and it's cacophonous with crickets. Mm. So we get these bookending scenes of him where he's very much in nature, no other people around, like plant and animal life surrounding him, a sense of quiet that that entails. But I don't know what it means, if it even means anything, right? Like it, like I said, it didn't mm-hmm. happen enough that I feel like it was definitely intentional and meaningful. But I wonder. Yeah, something to keep an eye on. Think about. Speaking of repeated motifs, Al is back to not eating. He does take a couple of bites of his hamburger in the woods, but they do make a point of showing him not eating it. And then when he's at dinner with his mother, again, he doesn't eat. In addition to feeling frightened, anticipating what's going to happen, being traumatized by what he's seen, Al feels both powerless in the face of what's to come. I assume he also feels guilty. Yeah. Would that kid he saw be dead if he hadn't helped Cyclops team? Would his school have been destroyed? Well, and when he sees that kid, he's wearing the Cyclops team patch. It's not just a matter of helping them. He views himself as part of them. And even what Bernie says to him in the forest, I don't think fully dissuades him. The scene where Al sees them pull that kid's body out of the rubble is another scene with really good sound and music design. Mm. There is this crescendo, this like loud, kind of discordant, off-tempo, unsettling musical sting when he sees it and before he runs away from the site. There's another musical note 
so, so subtle that I'm not even 100% sure it's there. But when Chris is picking through the rubble of that house, she picks up the little jewelry box. I think there are just a couple of like kind of thin musical tones suggesting that it might be a music box, a mostly broken or wound down music box. And I loved the music at the very end of the episode, the sort of hopeful we're going to do it. We're going to try yeah, music. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. You know, looking at Al's emotional state through the show, we can see the sense of tension and stress. He's just like in a bad place in the first couple of episodes. Then he comes into a period of like elation and, and real happiness through episodes three and four. Well, not for all of four. And now he's he's back in a really dark place, except that at the end, there's a there's that window of hope, that gleaming light, the possibility that they might be able to save the colony. And he needs that. He needs something good to come out of what's happened, because as he half says to Bernie, otherwise all those people died for nothing. And maybe they did. The position of the cop Chris talks to is certainly that all of this death was ultimately like avoidable and pointless. That scene with the cop God. has so many layers to it. <laughs> There's so oh. much happening. I guess we have to talk about it. The choice to interview the Alex pilot next to this downed mobile suit, next to the pilot seat covered in blood and full of holes. Oof, what a gruesome shot. It's an obviously manipulative choice. They're trying to incite a reaction from this pilot. They have no idea who's going to come meet them, and they're clearly surprised that it's a young woman. Mm -hmm. But it's meant to get a reaction out of her. Yeah, and the official purpose of this interview seems to be to ask whether the pilot knows about the Xeon agents who escaped or about the possible help from within that they received. Which, in that moment, my first thought was that they were talking about Al, and then I was like, oh no, wait, obviously they're talking about Charlie. <laughs> I don't know, they might be talking about Al. Al was more inside than anybody else. <laughs> um, yeah, but like, so much of what the cop says really resonates, but I also just despise this guy. He uses a bunch of really unpleasant tactics, he gets right up in her face, he talks down to her for being a pretty young girl. And it seems to me that what he's doing here is just like venting his frustrations at her because he's so mad about what has happened. And rightfully so. I, I don't hold that against him. But he's doing it at her because he perceives her as powerless to retaliate. I didn't get that sense. But she doesn't have any... Like, yes, she's the pilot, but she didn't decide to put the Federation base here. He's an older man, like physically large and imposing police detective. And he's basically chewing her out about what the Federation has decided to do. Because if you were to actually go to the people who are responsible for this, who are probably like Federation generals and the politicians in charge of the colony, they would just destroy his career forever. He can yell at her about things that aren't really her fault because he knows she can't do anything to him. But let's also not pretend it's this situation where she has no agency and no choice. She's made a lot of choices. She's pretty upfront with Al that she herself is making choices for herself. 
And she did decide to get into the Alex and fight. And to join the Federation and to not whistleblow the fact that they're doing secret weapons development in a place where they shouldn't be doing it. And like, and I'm not saying those are easy decisions. I'm not saying that it would be easy for her to buck these things, but it is possible. It's not impossible for her to do so. But he doesn't say to her, you shouldn't have fought. He doesn't say to her, you shouldn't have piloted the Alex. He doesn't say to her, you should have like leaked this to the press or something. He says, the Federation shouldn't have put a base here. Which, yeah, like, fair. But why are you saying that to Chris? I actually think the key to this is the way they finish their conversation. I don't know that it's his place or even that it's good that he's doing this. But he doesn't want her to think she's some big hero who saved the colony. Because she's not. Xeon mm-hmm. wouldn't have been there in the first place if it weren't for the division she's a part of being there. We see all of these emotions flash across her face and her body language while they're having this conversation. Anger, defensiveness, and shame. And she tries to justify her actions. And the point he makes is that it's not a math problem. It's not, or at least it shouldn't be, you know, X people will die in this scenario and Y people will die in this scenario and we pick the scenario where fewer people die. Like, should be trying to build scenarios where nobody has to die. Situations where anybody has to die are awful and shouldn't be. I mean, he's not wrong, but he is throwing his weight around and you can't ignore the, like, the presentation of this scene, the physical disparity between the two of them, the way he invades her personal space, the way he like tries to intimidate her. He's a bully. And he's bullying somebody who isn't going to lash out at him. He's also bullying the sole survivor. All of those other Federation pilots aren't here because they're dead. The other aspect of this is Xeon attacked before they knew there was a base here. Bernie says they weren't told that there was a Federation base in the colony when they made that first raid. So the cop is like, maybe not entirely right about it in the first place. I don't like him. I just think it's good that somebody is challenging Chris's personal narrative of, I had to do it and it was a good thing. <laughs> well, this is why I say there are so many layers to this scene. And ultimately, it's good for Chris as a person and as a character to be challenged in this way. But he's also a jerk and a bully. So are the cops who don't get in her face. They're just very dismissive. Oh, we're not going to learn anything from this girl. We should just go. She also is not so cowed or so powerless in this scenario that she can't say no comment. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. (laughs) I just don't know who else would tell Chris this. Who else would tell Chris, like, you cannot think about this in this way. Sure. I'm just imagining if this cop tried to give this speech to the prime minister of this colony or the commander of Rhea Defense Forces and what would happen to his career after he gave that speech. He has picked a target who can't fight back. Maybe like Tomino, he thinks there's no point talking to the olds. You got to talk to them when they're young. Maybe he has identified Chris as somebody who has a, a future in front of her when she'll have to make decisions like this again. Somebody who could change things, maybe. Not like those old people who are tired and set in their ways. Right. There are certainly problems with that particular Tomino and, and Tomino descended and even unrelated to Tomino perspective of like, ah, the youth will save us. It's like, ah, yes, we're going to put all of our expectations and all of our hopes on the group of people with the least institutional power. Yep. That makes sense. 
we won't help them or anything. We'll just sit here and wait for them to change things. The the way the emotions flash across her face, the way she hangs her head at the end of this conversation. Oof, so good. And then you see her processing throughout the rest of the episode. This is another thing that didn't occur to me until I was going through my notes, but when she's talking to Al, she's really working through her own feelings about what she did. And that's certainly what she's doing when she's in that ruined house. She's forcing herself to confront the consequences of the battle. And by the time she talks to Al, it feels like she has come up with an answer for herself, an answer to the questions that the cop posed. Her answer is basically that there are no clear answers, that every person has to judge for themselves and to do what feels right to them, and that ultimately that is selfish, but it's the only way to make a decision. And that you can't perfectly predict the consequences of your decisions, ever. This whole episode has been people being confronted with the unintended consequences of their actions. Mm hmm And with the sword of Damocles hanging over all of them, the nuclear weapon, there are so many questions. Like we talked about earlier, we don't know whether destroying the Alex would actually stop Xeon from firing that nuke. Would Chris destroy the Alex if she thought it would save the colony? Would Chris and the Federation try to attack that fleet? Would they try to fight in that way? How many people are we going to see ignore or defy their orders in the end of this series? How is it all going to end? What are the choices they will make? And what will be the costs of those choices? And now, Nina's research on the mural outside Al's school. There are flashes of it before this episode, but as Al stands outside his school, staring at the gaping hole in the building, we get a very clear view of the wall or fence around the school. It appears to be pale concrete with a mural painted across it. The mural has curving black line work, asterisk-like star shapes, a figure that is probably a sun and moon, vaguely circular blobs of bright color, and another figure crisscrossed with lines, its segments filled in a variety of colors. At one point watching this episode, I blurted out, that's Miro. And listeners, I think I was right. The mural is pretty obviously inspired by the work of artist Juan Miro. I will link to some representative works in the show notes to make my case. <laughs> As so often happens, the question then is, why? Was there something about Miro or his career or artwork that is particularly relevant to War in the Pocket? Did Miro have particular popularity or significance in Japan? Tom already talked about Pablo Picasso and the apparent influence of Guernica on the opening for this OVA, and Miro and Picasso were contemporaries. So at the very least, someone involved in this production was very interested in modern art, or at least Spanish painters. Juan Miró was born in 1893 in Barcelona, in Catalonia, Spain. He began making art at a young age, and although he went to business school and art school and spent some time working as a clerk, in 1911 he decided to devote himself to art full-time. Depending on the source, he either had a nervous breakdown a very serious case of typhoid, or both. Sources describe his early work as showing an interest in the avant-garde and inspired by fauvism 
Cubism, and the works of Van Gogh and Cezanne. By 1918, he had his first solo exhibition. He made his first trip to Paris in 1919, and from then on split his time between Montrouge in Catalonia and Paris. In the 1920s, he was influenced by the works of Paul Klee, Vasily Kandinsky, and Hans Arp. Though he never considered himself a surrealist, he moved in the same circles and collaborated with a few of them during this period. He exhibited with Dali and Marguerite, and in 1926, he was commissioned with Max Ernst to design sets and costumes for the Ballet Russe production of the ballet Romeo and Juliet. In 1927, Miro was reported to have said, I want to assassinate painting. In an interview four years later, he elaborated, I intend to destroy, destroy everything that exists in painting. I have utter contempt for painting. The 1930s saw Miro experimenting with form, shifting from painting to collage, sculpture, engraving, watercolors, lithographs, and pastels. When the Spanish Civil War broke out in 1936, he decided to stay in France. One source described him as not outspokenly political, but with Republican sympathies. He created a mural for the Spanish Republic's pavilion at the 1937 Paris International Exhibition, titled El Segador, or The Reaper, and also known as El Campesino Catalan en Rebeldia, or Catalan Peasant in Revolt. The depicted peasant and the Baratina hat the figure wears are symbols of Catalan identity and Catalan nationalism, and one of the peasant's hands was raised in the Republican clenched fist salute. The other hand held up a sickle, and there's some argument over whether it was intended to be just a sickle, a common agricultural implement, or a communist symbol. The massive painting was overshadowed somewhat by another large painting at the same exhibition. In fact, in the same building, Picasso's Guernica. And if you noticed the past tense in my descriptions of the Reaper, that's because the mural was lost. It had been painted directly onto large panels on the exterior of the building, and the panels were taken down at the end of the exhibition to be packed and shipped, and they went missing. All that's left of El Segador are descriptions and a couple of black and white photographs. In 1940, with the outbreak of World War II and the start of German bombing campaigns in France, Miro returned to Spain, this time settling in Palma de Mallorca. The first major museum retrospective of his work was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 1941 and during and after World War II, he would make many trips to the United States. There, over the next couple of decades, he would complete a wide variety of commissioned works, including a mural for the restaurant of the Terrace Plaza Hotel in Cincinnati, Ohio, a large painting for a dining hall at Harvard, a tile mural for the Guggenheim Museum, and a tapestry with Josep Royo for the Old World Trade Center. I actually found an article from the Harvard student newspaper about the arrival of that painting, Apparently, it was both very late arriving and was exhibited around Europe before being sent to its final destination. The article is a bit snippy about it. And the painting in question has actually been moved because the spot they wanted to fill was directly over a radiator, not good for paintings, and is now occupied by a different Miro piece because, you know, Harvard. This one made of ceramic tile. It was during Miro's time in the United States in the 1950s that he became interested in and very influenced by Japanese art. He kept a great deal of Japanese folk art in his studio, 
particularly admired the sculptures and ceramics and created several pieces of his own in a calligraphy scroll format. The Zen Buddhist influence on calligraphy particularly resonated. In an interview, Miro said, quote, I was fascinated by the work of Japanese calligraphers and, of course, it influenced my technique. Now I work more and more falling into trance, almost always being in a state of trance, and each time I gain more significance in my painting. He was able to visit Japan in 1966, when the National Museum of Art, Tokyo, exhibited a retrospective of his work. On this trip, he met poet, artist, and art critic Takiguchi Shuzo, the author of the very first monograph on Miro's work. Takiguchi had attempted to strike up a correspondence with Miro before this and had never heard back, but sent a letter introducing himself again and inviting Miro to visit him while in Japan. They met, they bonded. To quote one source, Takiguchi believed that Miro's searches in painting were going in the same direction as his searches in poetry. Both of them wanted to go beyond the usual visual language, calligraphy, and words. The two would go on to collaborate on several works, and we'll come back to Takiguchi. From the late 1960s until his death, Miro focused primarily on large pieces meant for public spaces, monumental sculptures, murals, mosaics, and so on. In 1970, he created a ceramic mural for the Osaka World's Fair, commissioned by an industry group of Japanese gas companies. And although he experienced some health declines, he continued to work until his death. In honor of his 90th birthday, there were a number of major exhibitions of his work in 1983. He also designed a new logo and tourism poster for Spain, refusing payment and donating the design to the government. And later that same year, he died. Miro was famous and influential, but there's nothing in this biography that obviously links him and his work to War in the Pocket. His personal life barely came up in any sources I consulted. He married and had a daughter. He has living grandchildren. But none of these relationships were talked about at all. He was conscripted into the Spanish army in 1915, a fact which only one source even mentioned and that one only in passing. No information about how long he served or if he ever said anything about that experience. He experienced periods of depression, one of which he described as, I was demoralized and suffered from a serious depression. I fell really ill and stayed three months in bed. But again, sources didn't really elaborate on this. It would seem that the answer to the question of why isn't something about Miro, so let us revisit his fan and collaborator Takiguchi. Takiguchi Shuzo was born December 7, 1903, and died July 1, 1979, and was an extremely influential Japanese poet, art critic, and artist. One source credits him with introducing surrealism to Japan in the late 1920s, and others describe him as, quote, the most prominent figure in Japanese surrealism and someone who made an inestimable contribution toward developing Japanese contemporary art. In addition to creating his own poetry and artwork, he corresponded with surrealist artists in Paris, published an article, Surrealism in Japan, for Parisian art magazine in 1935, and his circle organized an exhibition of surrealist works by foreign artists in 1937. He supported local surrealist artists in the face of government hostility to the movement, and after World War II, wrote art reviews, 
helped organize avant-garde exhibitions, and supported new young artists, in particular through the famous, or infamous, Yomiuri Independent Exhibition. In the name of democratizing art in Japan, it was a free-to-enter, unjuried, and famously permissive exhibition. As Japanese commissioner for the Venice Biennial in 1958, he was able to tour Europe and meet many of his favorite artists. Later in his career, he did a lot of collaborative work, including those I mentioned before with Miro. Miro was already internationally renowned, but if the extremely influential to the Japanese modern art world, Takiguchi, valued and promoted Miro's art within Japan, how much more popular and famous would that make his work there? And circa the release of War in the Pocket, neither man had died that long ago. Their presences were likely still felt, never mind their influence and legacies. How many animators studied other visual arts, or even went to more traditional art schools, before becoming animators? Those general ideas of influence and legacy and fame matter because, ultimately, I think some background artists just had Miro on the brain. Maybe they'd recently seen one of his pieces at a museum. Maybe they looked across the room and saw an art book of Miro's work on the shelf. It may not be any deeper than that. But I'd like to finish with two quotations of Miro's that feel appropriate to Gundam. The spectacle of the sky overwhelms me, he said. I'm overwhelmed when I see, in an immense sky, the crescent of the moon or the sun. There, in my pictures, tiny forms in huge empty spaces. Empty spaces, empty horizons, empty plains. Everything which is bare has always greatly impressed me. What did he think of outer space? What would he have thought of colonies, mobile suits, tiny human figures, barely protected and drifting in all that vastness? And, in a statement that could just as easily be from Tomino, It's the young people who interest me, and not the old dodos. If I go on working, it's for the year 2000, and for the people of tomorrow. Next time on episode 5.7, Grown Up, we research and discuss the final episode, episode 6 of War in the Pocket, and destroy the Gundam, save the world. A good liar. Tech support. Just like helping your older brother fix up his car. Montage. Parade, Fiesta, Dennis Company. Santa Claus must die. Holy The rage in Placid Al. Lots of crying. A happy new year. And is it ever really over? You never give up forever. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. 
The recap music is Pieces of Life by Analog by Nature. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. With the Omicron variant of COVID-19 currently surging in New York and around the world, I cannot in good conscience encourage you to share your wrong Gundam opinions, not even on deserted street corners. So stay home and mutter your wrong Gundam opinions to yourself or your most patient roommate, family member, pet, Gunpla model, or kitchen appliance. Maybe something like, the best line in the whole OVA was when Bernie heroically said, I'm going to end this war in the pocket once and for all. I get emotional every time I hear it. We won't hear you, but, you know, that's probably for the best. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion came from Hit the Targets in our patron Discord. Thank you, Hit the Targets. Mommy and Daddy are fighting. (laughs) Don't make it weird. (laughs) You can cut that. I just thought it was funny. (laughs) It definitely does not look like the one he's wearing when he's in the bar in First Gundam. No. Which would have been a nice shout out if they had done that specific suit for this scene but it might have been a little too on the nose it probably also would have felt uh anachronistic (laughs) yeah probably that that white suit pink shirt look is maybe more appropriate for the late 70s (laughs) than the late 80s That would actually be a good spot to put my thing about the musical note, actually. You don't have to run it all the way back, just put it in this part. Yeah, yeah. I think do that last line again, but sadder, and that'd be a good way to end it, unless you have more stuff to talk about. Get a stool that doesn't, um... Mm. fall apart quite so much.